that's why you need to dig deeper because people they will always say that oh i would love this feature this feature but it's your job as an entrepreneur and as a product builder to understand the problem that lies underneath every feature request welcome to SaaS origin stories Tune in to hear authentic conversations with founders as they share stories from the earlier days of their SaaS startups. We'll cover painful challenges, early wins, and actionable takeaways. You'll hear firsthand the do's and don'ts of building and growing a SaaS, as well as inspirational stories to fuel you on your own SaaS journey. Here is your host, Phil Alves. Today I have Daniel back. He's the CEO of Fulvio. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thanks a lot, Phil. Thanks a lot for having me on the show. Uh, yeah, I'm really excited for the conversation today. So then the first question I'd like to ask you, what problem does your product solve? Yeah, so basically Fulvio solves the problem of this kind of constant back and forth uh, between customer support teams and their actual end customers today basically it's uh, very time consuming both for the customer and uh, the SaaS companies or the companies and vendors that have to answer a lot of questions so we make it a lot faster to basically see what is, uh, is going on on your customer side so you don't have to waste your time going back and forth over a chat or over a phone you can basically go through and solve support tickets much faster with uh, with full views uh, yeah, session replays and co-browsing and, and other cool features to speed up support, yeah. Let's go a little bit deeper into that. So who are you serving? Who is the like customer buying this product? For sure. So we work with B2B SaaS companies. So companies like, for example, Personio or Connective or uh, Auto Protect Group, B2B software companies around Europe, US, Australia, uh, basically pretty global in most of the Western world that uh, yeah deal with B2B software. So that's kind of the... And who is the buyer? Is the head of customer service? Is the founder? Who is the buyer? Yeah, great question. Typically, it's the head of customer support or like kind of the leader or manager of the customer support teams. And then more and more, we also, of course, have like product people that are using our product to collaborate with customer support teams because basically support teams and product teams are starting to kind of merge together in many ways. And there's a lot of overlap between them since Support teams are often the first that will expose to customer issues, um, and they're the ones that will spot a lot of the trends that they then want to feed back into the product development cycle to actually improve the product and thereby also prevent repetitive issues from happening that the support teams have to deal with. And then FullView is kind of the bridge between these two teams, becoming a bridge that is basically helping data and yeah, information to, to flow between the two teams much faster. Then do you have like features and a way to make it easier for uh, products to understand everything that people are saying and like to prioritize, to set, to integrate to somewhere where products living? How are you making that bridge, that connection work? Yeah, basically the way that it works is, um, so for example, we have a really popular feature called session replays, which essentially can let you uh, watch back almost video-like recordings of what users they do inside of your product in your UI. Uh, together with a lot of metadata from your customer's browser, uh, for example, like console log warnings and issues, network uh, logs and things like that. Uh, we stitch all of that together in a really easy to read package that, for example, a product, uh, let's start with a customer support person can see all of that data inside of 
for example, Zendesk or Intercom or Salesforce Service Cloud, where they already live. And then the product teams can see all of this data inside of, let's say, for example, a system like Jira, that they already do, Jira, Linear, something like that. They can see these the links to, the, to this data really fast. And then both teams have the same data to work with, and they don't need to write manual bug reports or manually try to stitch together screenshots or feedback from customers to, to understand issues. Makes sense. So you're integrating with Zendesk and whatever customer support their software they're using, and you just you're sending more data to the customer support person, so they have like more information to go off. Let's say I was using a product and I found a bug or or something is not doing what I'm supposed to do, so the customer person, customer support person, now is able to understand more than just by words, but also see what I was doing when that happened. Is that correct? Exactly. Like people say a picture is a thousand words, but then this is like a video. So I don't know. That's what, what you would say that 10,000 words, but uh, it's nonetheless, it's, it's much more powerful than, than a constant back and forth uh, over text. Oh, that's awesome. And so how did you come up with the idea? So the idea behind Fullview came from a personal frustration that we felt myself and my co-founder. Uh, we've worked in customer facing roles and product related roles. And we basically felt this pain of trying to help customers going back and forth with them over the phone and email and chat just to help out a customer. And just to understand their issues takes a lot of time. So we got fed up with that ourselves. And we said, hey, let's build a, a better solution for this problem. Uh, so it was a problem that you had yourself and you wanted to solve the problem. So how did you fund it? So basically, the, the way we did it was um, originally we, we hired some uh, engineers from uh, from my co-founder's previous company, and we were able to raise raise a pre-seed round in the beginning when we first started the company, maybe a couple months after we first started, which was led by uh, some of the top uh, seed investors in Europe, uh, like uh, Cherry Ventures and Seed Camp. They funded companies like Revolut and TransferWise and Hopin. Mm-hmm. So you went full-time from day one? How was your transition? Because you say you work at other companies, now you're going to go become an entrepreneur. Walk me through your transition to being an entrepreneur and raising the money. How did that go? Actually, it's funny because it wasn't really a transition. We just jumped straight in, in into the deep end of the pool, so to speak. We just, it was kind of, I don't know if it's an unusual way to do it and maybe a little bit uh, high risk, but uh, we were so confident about the idea that we said, hey, we actually just quit everything we did all pretty much overnight. We worked on the idea for maybe like, uh, we had the idea in the back of our head maybe for uh, a month or two or something like that. And of course we worked on it like uh, we had we were insiders to the pain. So we knew the pain was very much real. So it's not like we had to like, you know, understand the pain was there at first. But then what we of course spent the first, a couple months was was validating that other people also had the pain that we weren't just alone in that. But uh, we went full time with Fullview pretty much like right away. So from the day you quit your job and went full time to the day you raised money, how long did that take? Oh, that was a matter of I think two months or something like that. Two months. And how was the process? What did you have ready to show investors? How were you able to to get those investors to to bet on you guys to, to build this company? Yeah, so uh, of course we had like a existing network having to build, uh, having like been in a, like a, yeah, built some companies before. Like my co-founder has uh, built two or three companies before, and I've had a network in in the kind of VC community previously that helped a lot. So of course that's a caveat that uh, we're able to uh, like unfair advantage that we had. But then basically we pulled together a few of our um, exist our, our former colleagues, people I had worked for at, at different uh, funds, and then. Uh, you know, it just kind of snowballed from there. 
Did you raise money on a PowerPoint, on a proof of concept, on an MVP? What did you have when you went to talk to these people? Basically a PowerPoint with a kind of group of people uh, backing us saying that this is a very real problem and uh, we really want to like, we buy into the pain here. And if Fullview built this, we would use this product. Kind of like a, we called it a design partner group that basically helped us lay out the initial product uh, roadmap. And of course, they helped give some feedback to the investors that wanted to invest in us. But it was pretty much just the PowerPoint in the beginning. That's pretty amazing. And take me to the process of designing, prototype, coding, the version one of your product. Yeah, basically. So the version one of our product, like, of course, we started with like a Figma file. Like most people, like we uh, we had a um, freelance like UI designer uh, where we basically had like an idea of the, what the user experience should be like in the MVP. And we started with the co-browsing feature that we had. That's basically a feature. If you haven't heard of the term co-browsing, it's a kind of like a screen control like you might have seen with TeamViewer back in the day, but it's an integrated it's integrated into your product and it all runs in the browser. So it's more modern TeamViewer type of killer uh, feature. And then we started with that one. We realized that was a good product hook. So I think it's important that you start with a hook that instantly people get it, right? When I say TeamViewer in the browser, I don't need to say anything else. You know what that means. You know the value of it. And it's kind of like a great 30-second uh, hook for you to understand the value in 30 seconds or less. So we started there. And then we started by building some, uh, you know, like some UI designs and Figma together with a UI designer. We hired like freelance. We just described like every kind of step of the user experience to him. And then uh, we started to build like some uh, MVP kind of, and we use a tool called Vercel, which is kind of like a front end type of prototyping tool. I'm sure you heard of. And then we started to like build out slowly like the MVP from there. And then I think maybe within the, within a couple of months, we had like a functioning MVP that we could, we could give to people to try out. How many months exactly did it take for you to get to the MVP? Depends how you define it, I guess. Like we didn't have like a product hunt launch or anything like that. Actually, uh, we even still haven't done that. Uh, but it was more like a soft launch. You can say probably I would call it three, four months. Okay. And then how long did it take you guys to get the first like real users on the product? I mean, after that three, four, I would probably say like real users, meaning like daily usage, not just like, hey, logging in once and twice and clicking a few buttons. I would probably say six months. Why did you guys have to do to take from like, hey, I'm just logging in to actually I'm using your product? Because that's that's normal journey. I have built hundreds of products and product go out, no one is using and you have to like start working on it. But I would love to hear from you. Like, what did you do to get people to actually use the product? Yeah, so I mean, in the beginning, and still very much today, we're still in the early days, we, we handhold pretty much everyone into like, you know, getting their first co-browsing uh, call done. And then, of course, now we have the session replays, getting like, you know, watching your first session replays and, and, and all of that. But we essentially try to also uh, use data to understand the adoption of our product together with actually, ironically, we use our own product very much to understand the adoption of our product, especially the session replays, because the session replays lets us see how people, they use our product. And we use full view installed on top of full view, which is kind of meta, but we use it to, <laughs> we, we use it to, to see how people use full view, right? Which help, helps us a lot. Uh, so are we, we kind of dog food our own product to do that. Uh, and then we also use different analytics tools like Google Analytics and Mixpanel to basically, uh, also we define some kind of like, north star uh, adoption metrics so for us it's the uh, average number of co-browsings uh, per user and the average number of session replays watched per user 
and then we look at you know how that changes week by week and month by month. Cool. So, so what is the North Star? Like, could you go deeper on that so people understand? Maybe, like, it's their first time building a product. How you f figure out your North Star and what it is? Yeah, and it's very subjective, of course. But I think the North Star is kind of like what what is like the key thing that's telling you that people are actually using uh, your product. And then for us, that's like uh, we we would basically want to understand how how deep is the engagement we just we don't want to know just the total or cumulative numbers uh, for us in our case like we of course we also look at what is the total number of uh, co-browsing calls and total number of session replays watched in our case or maybe whatever product it could be you could look at the total number and cumulative number but that's only going to tell you uh, one like the tip of the iceberg we wanted to go deeper and see like what is the real engagement like per actual user How did that change? And then, of course, also look at like the retention and the activation metrics, like how fast can someone get to, for example, Facebook had this a famous example that they wanted you to add seven friends in 10 days, right? That was kind of like their North Star activation metric. So you can kind of define it into like activation, adoption, retention, so forth, right? So that's kind of how we try to look at it. I love North Star. It's a great metric to really understand your users. It's, it's a lot better than just looking at revenue or just looking at, at logins. And, and I think the first one with a, a new product, it is that time to value thing. Like the, you gave, you gave the Facebook example. If you add seven friends, now you have value. So what was the metric that you guys used to define the time to value on your product? Yeah, we don't have a specific time to value because it depends on us because we kind of also rely, and at the moment we rely on like a support ticket being opened. That is like a support ticket where you would use full view, but that's like a benefit. It's a benefit that we have in the sense that like there's a clear trigger that like, for example, every product would have a trigger that needs you to actually then go in and use the product. For us, the trigger for the customer support use case of our product, it is basically that, hey, a support ticket opens or an intercom chat comes in let me use full view to quickly see what's going on on the customer side, right? That's kind of like our, our, our trigger and our time to value that you could maybe then assign a time to value to that, if that makes sense. And how much hand-holding are you doing of those users at the first? Are you actually jumping on a call with them and helping them understand the product or just trying to do to trainings and, and videos and stuff? No, we, we try to meet with every single user of our products And then uh, if we can, like we, now we have some larger teams that are using it. So sometimes it might be hard to, to ask to meet with uh, 50 people in one go or, or you know, then we, we will at least try to find like some samples in like a bigger team or definitely, definitely talk to the admins, uh, the team managers that can then go and collect feedback from their team. But we try to talk to uh, basically all users uh, that, that we have access to. What do you see as like the big benefits that you have on going that approach? Very like white glove, talking to all your users. What do you see as the biggest benefits? Well, there's always going to be things that like even there's always you just have you have to talk to users. I mean, I think you're crazy if you're if you're not talking to your users. It's an early stage startup, right? I mean, why why wouldn't you? You want to understand like the good and the bad and read try to read in between the lines, and you need to actually talk to them to do that. Of course, the, we have also like if you use a session replace tools, if it's FullView or some other session replay tool out there, you also can have a lot of that benefit without talking to them because then it's kind of like, I think you should, it's great to do both. You, you can't have one without the other. Like you can use a, some sort of observability tool, product observability tool and analytics to see how people use it in the wild 
right? When you when when like they're just using it day to day, but then you also need to get a meeting with them to actually ask some specific questions, like, uh, hey, how did you use this feature? What was good about this? And tell me how I can improve beyond what I can see in the UI when you use my product. So, I think it's important to to do both, like have like analytics and observability tools while also actually physically talking to your users. And and what's your strategy when a user requests a feature or when like people are asking you a specific thing that they would like to do in your product? Do you add to the backlog? Do you decide it doesn't make sense with the business strategy? Like so what's your strategy to to handle that the other feedback they are receiving? Yeah, normally I think uh, we, we try to immediately that my first thought is always like who else wants this, right? If someone if says, hey, I would love this feature, my immediate thought would be, okay, are you alone in this? Because if it's super, super specific to one customer, it's probably not worth the time and resources to build it just for one specific. Uh, of course, it depends what it is, but most nine out of 10 times, it's not worth it if it's for one customer. So my immediate thought is, let me go ask 10 other people about the, if they want the same thing, right? So if you tell me I want Feature X, I'm going to go ask 10 other people, do you also want Feature X and try to get their thoughts on it? If they say, no, I don't want it, then I'll probably just drop it. If they say yes, then I'll dig deeper from there. And then a thing that I find very useful is having, like, I'm a very visual type of person. Like, I'm definitely a visual learner too. For me, I like to uh, work together with designers to then draw up an initial just like design. It doesn't have to be super perfect, but I think it should be like a, it shouldn't just be a wireframe. It should be like a, what people call a high fidelity design, right? That actually looks like your, your product and everything. Make a high fidelity design of this idea that we can then look at together. And then we can, then we can start to show that high fidelity design to those same 10 people who said, yes, I want this. And then go from there. Do you find that sometimes when people are asking feature, the feature that they're asking doesn't actually solve the problem they're trying to solve? Maybe they're like too quick to ask a feature instead of explaining the problem that they're trying to solve and, and then you can figure out how to solve that problem. That Yeah, that's why you need to dig deeper because people, they will always say that, oh, I would love this feature or this feature, but it's your job as an entrepreneur and as a product builder, it's your job to understand the problem that, that lies underneath every feature request, right? Because maybe there is a problem, like we've had, we've had instances where someone said that, oh, I would love to have this feature request and then I'm asking why and then I realized that, okay, it's because they have... To, you know, problem A, B, C, but actually this feature would be like a total overkill for that problem. And we could probably solve that with like some like no code thing or some some quick like CSV file, something we can extract from our database. It doesn't have to be a feature. So yeah, and then the reverse can also be true where like it, it is actually like a much bigger problem and they're not really telling you the whole story of it and you need to actually build significant feature sets for it. Yeah, it's definitely like a challenge like, getting that information because you want to talk to your customers, but you don't actually want to blindly follow what they're telling. One of my favorite books on the topic is The Mom uh, Test. And it talks a lot about how, how to actually communicate with your customers, how to get the information. What's the real problem that they're trying to solve? Because I personally believe, and love to hear your opinion, that just listen to your customers. We hear that out of time, but I, I believe the advice alone is pretty risky because you have to understand your customers. Uh, listen is one thing. Understand is like the next step, you know? Yeah, exactly. So definitely listen to your customers, but listen to their problems. Not Don't just build everything they tell you to build. That's how you get a bloated product. Yeah, yeah like Ford famously said, if 
So I would ask my customers what they want. They want to fast horses, <laughs> faster horses. <laughs> exactly. You know? exactly. Yeah, <laughs> so that's a classic example. And what have worked for you guys to attract customers? How, how have you finding customers that you have right now? So we've definitely done like a combination of like inbound and outbound and referrals and things like that. So uh, nothing that's crazy out of the ordinary, but we definitely found that like um, our, our investors were pretty helpful as well because like we are um, we're selling to B two B SaaS companies and they tend to be also backed by uh, by VCs. And then uh, that's definitely one point where VCs can be quite helpful in our specific case. Uh, so they could introduce us to other portfolio companies. They're kind of like, you know, a lot of YC companies, they do that in the beginning. They sell to other YC companies. Maybe they get their first 10 customers from there. We did something similar to that, but then we realized that obviously we need to go outside of that. And uh, outbound has worked quite well for us, just like outbound emails uh, on, uh, yeah, just email and LinkedIn that works. Uh, the messaging resonates quite well. People understand the problem of slow customer support. Everyone's experienced it um, before. And then, uh, yeah, definitely also, you know, SEO works for us pretty well. So that's kind of like standard SaaS playbook so far, I would say. In the early days, like what has been the thing that worked the most reliable to bring those customers? Was it outbound or was uh, your referral? So Yeah, outbound just resonated really well for us. So we got tons and tons of meetings from that. That's amazing. Yeah, I love outbound as the first strategy because also, like you say, you get to test your messaging, right? And then once you figure out the message that people respond to, you can expand on that on content marketing and other channels. But it's just so quick to to figure out because everyone is getting a bunch of outbound messages. And if they answer yours, it's because your message is very strong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah, de yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's a hard, it's a really hard channel, but like, and you, you have to do a lot of volume and it's like painful, but it works. Yeah, I, I think that's an early channel, for, at least it's a good early channel. So uh, what's like the first oh shit moment that come to mind from the early days of your SaaS? It could be a good oh shit moment, a bad oh shit moment. Like, I'll, I'll pick a good one. <laughs> there's been plenty of bad ones so far, but there's been plenty of good ones too. Uh, I think a good one was like the first time, like when we launched that uh, MVP in the beginning, and it's not that long time ago for us, things are moving really fast. So about a year ago when we launched the MVP and we saw people like really using it for the first time with a real customer like when i saw that okay like auto protect group is literally sitting here right now somebody's so what they do is like they do car dealership software right and they use fullview to support that software someone is trying to buy a car in the uk and they're using fullview to help that person through that process and that that, that was like oh shit this thing actually works and there's actually something real here that we can replicate and it's being used by a company that's a decent size that people know, and, and one of the biggest uh, in their space in the U in, in the UK. So definitely, that's amazing. And so, could you tell us a very smart decision that you made, like in the early days of your company? We made lots of bad decisions, <laughs> but we made lots of good decisions too. Uh, I would say, like a very smart one was like uh, hiring strong people. Like that's at the end of the day, like you you can't do everything yourself as a founder, even though you you want to. But like the people you hire is the most important. And that's definitely like hiring strong people that can help you execute on, on your vision. That's like really the key. How do you hire strong people? Like how could you teach other founders to do that? What do you say? Man, it, that, it's so hard. It's probably one of the hardest things about it, about this whole journey is like the people you're, you're hiring. And obviously like you want to keep hiring, you want to keep raising the bar too, right? And hopefully you can always keep raising the bar with the uh, early team that you have. 
sometimes uh, you can, sometimes you can't, and then you have to like, that depends on case by case, right? But I think definitely like look for people that are uh, doers and don't look for people who necessarily maybe came from a really big famous company. Like don't hire like maybe someone who was like, you know, the uh, senior manager at Facebook if you're a small startup, because that's going to be hard to translate his or her experience into a small startup. Even though a lot of people, they think that, you know, maybe get a little bit, I don't know, caught up in that because it seems fancy and exciting to get someone from Facebook to come work at your company. And not saying you should never hire anyone from Facebook, but just as an example. So definitely we look for people who are like, who've been through like the startup journey before and uh, maybe have started, maybe have, maybe have been in a company uh, and then seen a company grow from a small scale to a large scale and then been through that journey before and now want to get their hands dirty and, and do it again with a different problem. That's golden advice and a mistake I see founders make all the time. Like they're hiring people to the wrong stage of their business, right? They're, they're hiring the VP of whatever, or like they're hiring the CTO that doesn't code anymore. <laughs> you know? So uh, like yeah, yeah. you actually, in my opinion, you not, don't need those people. You hire the doers and you develop the doers. They become the VP. They might become uh, your CTO if you don't have one as like your early founder. But I just see people make them mistake all the time. So this is golding advice because like, again, many times in big companies, like we hire a designer from a big company. I run a consulting firm with like over a hundred people and we build uh, SaaS products for other companies and I have my own, my own product. But we, we hire a designer that, that came from a very big company and she's amazing. But here's the reality. In a big company, you stay six months working one little feature. When you are trying to run, build SaaS, like early stage, you're shipping a feature a week. So like the pace is very different. Like we don't care about the transitions. Oh, look at how beautiful this transition is. I'm like, well, is the feature working? This is... Transitions are after fall. <laughs> you know, like that's amazing yeah. if you can get... amazing. So it is... A mistake that, again, I see founders make all the time. You have to think, who is the person that can actually do? And, and I, I like to say, you don't even need a software engineer. You need a product engineer. Because a software engineer might be someone that's very, very good at optimizing things and that's people that Google hire because they make a query 10 seconds faster and saves them millions in server and processing. That's not what you need. You need a developer that can ship that can ship features uh, and they understand the, the big picture. So thank you for that advice because it's, again, it's, it's a mistake that I see founders make all the time. Yeah, exactly. It's a very common one. And not saying that, like, uh, that, you know, we didn't make any of those mistakes, but uh, definitely think we try to keep a short feedback cycle so everyone makes mistakes, but then you can try to correct those mistakes as fast as you as possible and learn from them. And how about a blunder that you made, the decision that was not ideal? I mean, we de definitely, like, staying on the recruiting topic, like, we also did hire some people that maybe were too early for a business, like, really talented, great people that would have been awesome and long-term people with us if we had hired them maybe like a, a couple stages later, maybe like Series A, post-Series A, right? And then we definitely hired like too early. So like I'm definitely also speaking from personal experience uh, when I mentioned that. So that, that, was, that was definitely a blunder, but then, you know, you know, you correct a mistake and you move on and that's long-term best for everyone. For sure. In the early days of your business, what was kind of like your biggest fear? I think the, it's so hard to say. And like right now, there's so many things uh, you know, I guess just like many other founders right now, I think there's a lot of anxiety in the market because the economy is such a mess or it seems like such a mess, at least from the, yeah, what's going on and banking crisis and Silicon Valley Bank and whatnot, right? 
uh, lots of layoffs going around everywhere. So that's definitely something that you you pay attention to a lot. Uh, but um, we're in a really strong position and lucky that we uh, you know we raised a strong seed round twelve months ago. So like financially, we're really strong. But definitely, like it doesn't mean that you can just be like comfortable. You definitely need to just like keep on your toes. So like complacency is something that uh, I want to make sure that never like you know uh, falls upon us. And uh, want to make sure that we stay on our toes and stay like focused as well and avoid distractions that might be going on in the outside market. Yeah. So what's in your opinion, financially strong, man, is it 12 months, 24 months run away? Like what do you see like as a, a financially strongly positioned to be, especially in this economy? Mm-hmm. Well, the general advice that uh, a lot of investors are giving is definitely like try to keep at least 24 months of, uh, of runway right now in, in this economy. And that's kind of like what you're reaching for. That I think most founders they should reach for, uh, yeah, like the twenty-four months. And if you're if you're significantly below that, then then you know then you need to hard, make some hard decisions or figure something out quick. For sure. And so, if you could go back in time, right before you quit your job to start this company, what would you tell yourself? That's a good question. I would say maybe just like take it step by step as well. Like as you can hear, like from the at the beginning of this uh, this conversation, I said that we just jumped straight into it, like st- jump straight into the deep end of the pool. And that's kind of like my personality type sometimes to so just to say, uh, screw it, let's just do it right now. We don't need to, to wait. Like I'm, a, I'm definitely the very impatient type, which I think in some way can be like a great strength and it can be a great weakness at the same time. So it's great for pushing things forward and pushing a team forward. But it's also something I recognize that it's good to balance it out a bit sometimes because sometimes good things, they take time and you need to also take it step by step. That's that's usually how it goes, right? Our strengths are often our weakness too. <laughs> so yeah, you have exactly. to realize, is that a time to that's going to serve me or not serve me at this time? Exactly. It's like, uh, for example, with people who are very creative, you know, like creative types, like designers or artists, they are often like whatever trait that makes them creative also makes them like kind of like a mess to work with. Sometimes they can be like super dis- disorganized and all over the place, but that's like part of the creative process. So definitely agree with you on that. So how is the company doing today and what does the future look like? A lot to hear any metric that you can share about the size, maybe how much you raise, how big is the team, MMR, if you're public with like anything that we can understand where the company is today and then tell us about the future where you think the company is going yeah i mean i can share numbers that are already public like for example we in, in terms of fundraising we raised uh somewhere around nine nine ish a million euros uh to date uh across two two rounds and we have a pretty lean team of 14 people uh on, on staff that includes myself and my co-founder and then that's kind of like yeah well, what I can publicly disclose so far in terms of numbers. And what the future looks like for the business. Yeah, definitely. The future for us, I think, is right now, like customer support is something that is uh, more customer support and customer success. They really much go hand in hand. And in many companies, sometimes they report to the same uh, business units or the same managers. Um, it's something that's a core focus for a lot of SaaS companies today because of based the economy that we just talked about. People want to retain as many customers as possible. So I think that's like a great market opportunity for us and everyone in our space uh, to be able to then yeah help customers create better customer experiences, more effective customer support and customer success, and thereby like happier customers that will hopefully stay with you much much longer especially in in the uh, in this economy yeah all of a sudden churn become became a more important metric than growth right <laughs> let's reduce yeah, churn yeah. as much as we can 
people say, you know, customer success and support, it's the new sales. Mm-hmm, exactly. And, and it's, you can also upgrade your current customers a lot easier than try to bring new customers in, uh, in the economy right now. Yeah. So what book do you recommend for every SaaS founder or every founder? There's a book that I really like called uh, The Clock of the Long Now. And basically, it's a book that's it's a kind of an abstract concept, but uh, it's basically about long-term thinking and how uh, you know you can benefit a lot by positioning yourself for long-term uh, benefit. And the story is kind of like so. There's actually like a real clock that they have built that actually is funded by uh, Jeff Bezos, which is they built this clock which is supposed to be lasting for ten thousand years. Uh, and this is sort of like a metaphor for how you can basically, uh, yeah incorporate long-term thinking into your own day-to-day life and, and uh, take advantage of compounding interest uh, in different areas of, of your life. So uh, I would definitely recommend that, the, the, the Clock of the Long Now. This is like a great book. I'm going to pick it up. I never read before. So sure. Daniel, if people want to learn more about you, follow you, what, what's the best way to do it? Yeah, I'm, I'm very active on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter, but uh, LinkedIn is definitely where my kind of where I hang out. So uh, just add me, Daniel Bach, uh, B-A-K-H. Um, Add me on LinkedIn. Feel free to, uh, to yeah, send me a message. That's awesome. Okay, Daniel, thank you very much for coming to the show. That was an amazing experience. And thank you for sharing your wisdom today. Thank you so much for having me. SaaS Origin Stories is brought to you by DevSquad. To find out more about how we help entrepreneurs launch new products and help larger businesses plug in a ready-to-go development team, visit devsquad.com. Add us to your rotation by searching for SaaS Origin Stories in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click follow so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening. And remember, every SaaS hero has an origin story.